The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword, And yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Lions and tigers and beasts, oh my. We, uh, if you're new to Sacred City Church, you might be stepping in here and be like, what did I get myself into today? And let me just, let me just provide some context. We've been 
going through the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we took a couple week break, but we've been going through the book of Revelation, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sort of unpacking this. Now, the book of Revelation is perhaps one of the most unique books of the Bible in that it is a revelation that God has given his servant John through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So what, what basically what's happening is Jesus is inviting John the Apostle in to see things from a perspective that we cannot see with our earthly eyes. And he's shedding light on this cosmic battle, this, this really what is the ultimate battle of the cosmos, that what is good and right and perfect, God, is going to war against what is evil and dark and oppressive, and here we're starting to see some of this battle collide. So that's a little bit of context uh, here so you don't go running away. Um, I'd like to pray, and we can actually jump into this and start to figure out what this is saying. Uh, Father, we, we come to you this morning um, knowing that our wisdom is in short supply, that without your spirit at work, without your wisdom being given to us, this is... This might as well be written in a foreign language. And so we ask that your spirit would go before us now to soften our hearts, to, uh, to be at work in our minds, to comprehend your knowledge, uh, to embrace your knowledge and to em- embody that in the form of wisdom. And, and would this affect us not in just a theoretical way, not in, not in a, um, an academic way, but this would, this would be something that is helpful for our daily walk with Christ. I ask that you would help me now, Father, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, would it be none of me and all of you, Father, and with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, bring glory and praise to you. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Uh, Charles Caleb Colton is a man who is credited with the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now, he, he ought to be flattered by how often that saying gets repeated. He, he, I think he was onto something there. And, and when you think about it, uh, there are many companies that you could say the same thing about too, right? To be imitated is a sincere, uh, sincerest form of flattery. One of the companies that comes to mind when I think about this is Yeti. It's a cooler company. Maybe you've probably seen, you probably have uh, seen a cooler or a tumbler or whatever they make um, circulating around the world. Um, this was a company that was owned by a couple of fishermen brothers who had a quest to make a cooler that was durable enough for their fishing uh, expeditions that they could stand up on the cooler without it collapsing, something that was uh, efficient enough at keeping ice cool while they were out on the boat all day long that keep ice. And, and the product that they came up with was quite uh, impressive. They, they've created a, a, a cooler that is bear-proof. Like, literally, a bear cannot break into this cooler. It's, it's so efficient that it can keep ice cold for three and a half days. It's, it's tough. It's strong. It's durable. It's everything that they were trying to make. And I promise you, this is not an advertisement for them. We're just acknowledging uh, the, the genius of their product. Um, this, this product surpassed all of the standards of all other coolers before. It gained a huge following in a way that no other cooler company has, right? P- people are wearing T-shirts with the Yeti brand on it and baseball hats, and you carry tumblers around. So it's got this following where people are just uh, so obsessed with it in a way that th- this is their thing. 
I even saw a Yeti bumper sticker on a truck this week. It's like, that's a weird thing to put on your truck, but okay. Now, realizing that Yeti had this huge following, and I'm not talking about the, uh, the, the Bigfoot here, Yeti, the, the brand, had this big following. It, it, it inevitably attracted a bunch of impersonators or, or, or people that are imitating their same product. You see it with Arctic and Ozark Trail and Mammoth, and there's a whole list of other companies that have sort of taken their idea and made it their own offering nearly identical products to compete for the same market at a somewhat lower price point. See, these companies realized that Yeti was onto something. They were doing something right, and they saw how people were drawn to their product, and these competitors wanted to capitalize on that. Now, the reason why I talk, I'm talking about coolers, this is kind of a weird thing to talk about. The reason why I'm talking about coolers is because we can kind of see the same thing going on here in Revelation chapter 13. When we, when we take a step back, we can see that this is a, a grotesque version of imitation. Satan and his beasts are essentially imitating Jesus in order to compete with him. This is, this is the epitome of the wolf in sheepskin here. And the scary part is that as, as Satan and these two beasts that we'll learn about here as we progress, they're having some success in their imitation game. They're, they're creating a following for themselves. And in some way, it's as if this counterfeit version of Jesus is being passed off as the real deal. Now, you can't go anywhere these days and pay for something with a large bill, $50, $100 bill, and not have it inspected. I remember when I was working retail, I mean, this is probably almost a dozen years ago, every employee that came through there was trained on how to spot a fraud. Now, when you're working for a billion-dollar company, you would imagine that $100 here and there wouldn't really be that big deal, but... But for these companies, it was. They, they knew something. They knew that if they started accepting the fraud, the counterfeit, it would eventually lead to financial devastation and could ultimately turn their company into a flop. Now, if that is what's true about a green piece of paper, right, if a counterfeit could lead to failure, how much more so is this true when it comes to spiritual things? See, this is the stuff that really matters. This is the, the life and death stuff. This stuff has eternal significance. So let me ask you, as we, as we receive and are intaking a stream of information, are, are we inspecting it? Are we examining what is true and what's false, what's, what's legit and what's a counterfeit? See, I think we really, really need to because there's a danger here that if we're not taking everything under review and, and, and looking and examining it, there's, there's a chance that we might get duped into believing something completely false. And the results could be damning. So we're gonna look in here at verse 13. I think with thir verse or chapter 13 gives us a lens. It, gives, it helps us to spot the counterfeit. 
And so we're going to give ourselves to this chapter and try to work through some of the bizarreness here. Uh, and, and as you just look at, if you're looking at, at your Bible, there's, there, you'll see a couple of headings, the, the first beast and the second beast. And, and given my whole spiel about being an intent, uh, imitator, you would, you would just by the, these headers think, oh, they're not, they're not imitating anything. Right? This is not a disguise. They're, they're plainly labeled as beasts, especially if you go back and, and put them in the context of chapter 12 where we see that Satan is called the great red dragon. Now, there's something that's helpful about these guys being called what they're being called, right? The great red dragon, the first and second beast, because I think there's something wired inside of us that when we encounter a beast or a dragon that tells us to run away, right? Now, last week I mentioned my fascination with nature documentaries, and one of the things that these nature documentaries have instilled in me is what I believe is a healthy fear of predators, I'm walking through Blackhawk Park or I'm biking through Sunderbrook. And realistically, I know the chances of mountain lions existing in this area, in a populated space like this, pretty unlikely. But my eyes are peeled. <laughs> you see, because if I see a big, furry, cat-like beast, I am getting out of there as fast as I can. Because I think that's what an appropriate response is when you encounter a wild beast, especially if you're unarmed. Now, John is doing us a favor here by describing these demonic creatures as beasts and as dragons. It's, it's an imagery. It's something that invokes fear and, and really portrays them in a dreadful way. He, he's telling us these, these guys aren't cuddly. You don't want to nestle up to these guys. And so it seems like it's not a very convincing disguise. If, if, if these guys are trying to imitate Jesus, sure, certainly they would choose something else, right? Find, find some sort of hipster, you know, set him in a coffee shop, give him a Bible and tell him to Instagram his Bible. You know, that, that would be more of a, a passable imitation of what we think of Jesus or this, this caricature of a effeminate, blue-eyed, soft-spoken Jesus that I think white evangelicals have invented, right? That, that would be a sort of imitation of Jesus. But that's not what John sees. In verse 1, he tells us he sees a beast coming from the sea. In verse 11, there's a beast coming from the earth. Now, this is a nod. What we're seeing here, this beast from the sea, beast from the earth, this is a nod at, at Old Testament caricatures, or, or not really caricatures, but beast of the Old Testament that don't really have, it's hard to define what they are, but, but we see this, the, the, the beast of Leviathan. It's a sea creature. You see it in, in the book of Job pop up. Um, you see Behemoth, it's a, a land monster. And so when, when they're characterized as these beasts coming from the sea and from the earth, it's very clear that these, are, these two demonic creatures are working under Satan's power. They're working for the red dragon. They're sort of his minions. I realize talking about dragons and beasts, Leviathan, behemoth, this might sound like fantasy land here, like we stepped into a J.K. Rowling world. But this, this isn't fiction at all. 
And the reason John labels these two creatures as monsters is because he sees their spiritual essence. He, he sees their, the inner image, the spiritual reality about these creatures. But he does it in a way, as he sees them as beasts, he describes them in how they're presenting themselves, sort of an optic way. They're, they're playing dress up. They're, they're posing as Jesus. And this really shouldn't be shocking to us because we know in 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that Satan is an, he deceived, uh, disguises himself as an angel of light. And so do his servants. They work in disguise. Now there's a reason... There's a reason, actually, let me. So these guys are in disguise, but how do we see that they're in disguise? How, how, do, we, how do we know that they're imitating Jesus? What exactly is it? Well, I think to get a picture of these beasts and what it, what it looks like in their imitation, we have to get a picture of Jesus and what he has looked like so far, how, how the apostle John has presented him to us up to this point. And, and really, when you think about it, John has already done this in, in the first five or so chapters of the book of Revelation. He's presented Jesus to us as the real reality without deception or exaggeration. Chapter five tells us that Jesus is a lamb who stands as though he has been slain. That, that he isn't just pretending that he's slain, but he's actually been slain, that he himself has received a mortal blow, which we now equate back to the cross. But this, this lamb who is slain isn't dead. He, he is alive. He's living. And he has seven horns and seven eyes. And back then we talked about the number seven and its significance. It's, it's the number of perfection, of wholeness. We think of it in seven days of a week. Right? That's a complete week. God rested on the seventh day. He looked at all creation and said it was good. And so in describing Jesus as this lamb who was slain with seven horns and seven eyes, he's telling us that, that Jesus is, is worthy. He's, the, the horns represent power. That Jesus is all powerful. That his seven eyes represent his ability to, to see all things. He's all knowing. And Jesus displays his worthiness. By going to the throne of God where God the Father is seated and in his hand is a scroll that, that holds the inheritance of all things good for all God's believers. And he goes and he opens the scroll when nobody else was found worthy. And as Jesus opens the scroll, the elders and the angels respond with singing and song. They're, they're cast, casting their crowns down at Jesus' feet saying, worthy are you. They're bowing in worship. And in verse, chapter five, they come to the conclusion here that this is what they say about Jesus. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Yada, ha, ha, ha. He's worthy. Now, 
by cementing us in this reality of who Jesus is at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it enables us to step into these following chapters and see what's going on. We can see how the first beast is imitating Jesus. And and, in doing so, he's been called the Antichrist. And you look at at chapter 13, go back to chapter 13, and his his imitation is undeniable. He has horns, ten horns. He's got seven heads. What he's doing here, he's exaggerating his complete power and authority. He's imitating. He's not the real deal, but he's imitating. Verse 3 shows us he has a, a mortal wound that seems to be healed. Again, he's he's portraying himself like Jesus, who is the lamb that was slain. He's showing himself as this beast who's received a mortal blow, but he's been healed. And in being this beast who's bypassed this mortal blow, he's trying to show you he's worthy of worship. If Jesus is worthy of worship, well, I am too, because I got, I don't know, I got seven heads. But this This beast, this first beast that we meet, stands opposed to everything that Jesus is for. And you can see that because one of his, the things that he loves to do is blaspheme. He loves to say things that aren't true, to attack God's character, to attack God's people. Now, if we look down to the second beast, we can see some of the similarities too. This is beast, we're told uh, in, in verse 11, It looks like a lamb, but speaks like the dragon. Okay, the the wolf in sheepskin here. And this is why this particular character is known as the false prophet. He's basically, if you keep reading through chapter 13, you see that he's basically a hype man for the first beast. He's there trying to get people to worship the first beast, who is then getting people to worship Satan, the red dragon. Now, this this second beast isn't necessarily imitating Jesus more so than he is imitating Jesus' followers. He is the counterpoint to the two faithful witnesses that we met in chapter 11, if you can think back that far, where God placed these two witnesses, which is a representation of the church, God's people, to proclaim about God and to persevere under the threat of injustice, persecution, suffering, now, Satan whips up his a counterpart to this, his own witnesses who are deceiving people, who are proclaiming a false gospel, deceiving people into worshiping the dragon. Now, when most people hear Antichrist and they hear talk about a false prophet, we want to know who this is, right? Point the finger and tell me who this person is. And there have been many theories. Nero, who was... Um, governor of Rome at the time of most of this activity. And in the first century, we, we'd think of it Hitler. The reformers would have said it's the Catholic Church. But in 1 John chapter 2, 18, we're told, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. So we're, 
This antichrist isn't a single person that we can, can identify as, as singularity of the antichrist. But there's a spirit of the antichrist. It's, it's a, it's a multi-headed, right? The beast is multi-headed. So there's this multi-character, multi-manifestation of who this, this antichrist could be. But, but by John's description of the antichrist, he, he's telling us by describing it as a, a leopard and a bear and a lion, that's in verse two. What he's doing is going back to, to an illusion that we visited once already in Jan Daniel chapter seven, where there's this, this figure of several different kingdoms that were stacked up on top of each other. Each of them correspond to these attributes that are, are ascribed to this beast. And these Characters represent, or these animals, these creatures represent different kingdoms that would come and rise to power and sort of reign over the earth. And so, what John is telling us, this Antichrist isn't necessarily a person, but more rather an institution, a contrary kingdom. And the false prophet is, is similar in this way. It's not a single person who's coming as a false prophet, but, but there are multiple false prophets. This sort of, these beasts function as a, a, a representation, a corporate representation of, of all of the demonic agents working to deceive. And we see dozens of warnings throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to be on guard for false prophets and false teachers. And so here, John is presenting to us something that's kind of shocking, really. He's presenting Satan and his beasts, his, his minions are imitating God to create an, create an unholy trinity. Now, this is a demonic parody of the triune God that Christians worship. Right, Christians say there's one God in three equal and distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Satan is creating a parody of that. Now, when we think of parody, we think of, of something that's typically comical, right? We think of Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live or, or Spaceballs or Shrek. These are all parodies that are, are pretty funny. They're entertaining, but the parody that, that Satan is laying out here, he's trying to make a joke of God. But from an eternal perspective here, there's nothing funny. Because what Satan is, he's not going for laughs. He's trying to steer people away from God and lead them to their misery and destruction. And chapter 13 shows us two ways that this unholy trinity goes about his mission of, of robbing God of his worship. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, David Sanderson was here. He did a great job of showing us one of these aspects, right, how, how Satan functions as the accuser. He's pointing his finger at us. But Satan's schemes are diversified, and all of them are effective. And we're shown here that one of the ways, one of the other ways that Satan works to, to rob God of his worship is through deception. 
We see this in the second beast. It's, it's labeled specifically in verse 14. It says that this beast is working signs and, and, and teaching in a way that deceives those who dwell on the earth. Now, we've already covered part of this in, in the appearance of these beasts as they try to imitate Jesus. But there's more to, this decep- to deception than just the appearances. See, one of the things that Satan is excellent at is misrepresent- misrepresenting the facts. And he's, he's crafty about this. He re- very rarely comes out and, and just tells a blatant lie. They say the best lies always have some truth mixed in. I'm pretty sure Satan invented that phrase because that's exactly what he does. He takes something that is true and then he injects a little bit of lie into it, poisons it. And even in this small twisting of the truth, he takes something that is authentic and makes it a counterfeit. Now, a perfect example of this is in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They're they're in the garden. God's created this beautiful place for them to live. They're flourishing. This this whole creation is really at their disposal. They've got food to eat. They've got shelter. They're enjoying their walks with God in the cool of the day. They've got everything that they could want. And then God giving them free reign of this garden, he makes one distinguishment here. He, He says, there's one single tree that I don't, I don't want you to eat from. It's a, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And he's saying, I, I don't want you to eat this because, well, if you eat of it, you're gonna die. So he warns them of this tree. Don't, don't eat it, right? And it's got some consequences, right? The surely you will die. That's the cost of disobedience. But then the serpent who is Satan weasels his way into the Garden of Eden and he, he confronts them. He starts asking, questioning them. Did, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, p- pieces of that statement are true, right? Because God did tell them not to eat of a specific tree in the garden, but he twists one word. He, he injects the any instead of that one tree. And Eve responds, at least she, she kind of has her wits about her. She says, no, we, we can eat any tree but one, and we can't even touch it or we'll die. Now, God never told them not to touch the tree. Now, and here you can see how Satan is working and twisting what is true to make it Counterfeit. But then this is where Satan starts making a mockery of God. He's like, you know what? Don't listen to God. You won't die if you eat it. That's completely the opposite of what God has told them. And that right there is a bold-faced lie, but he's worked his way up to that point. And then he plants a seed of doubt in them. He starts making uh, Adam and Eve question the goodness and, and the worthiness of God, right? He's trying to get them to believe that God's holding out on them. 
that he's keeping something good from them. He says, if you eat it, you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. And, and you know, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to be like him. Now, but the irony of this whole thing is that Adam and Eve were already like God. They, they were created in his likeness and image. But here they forfeit the beauty of paradise, they forfeit all the good stuff that they had going on in the Garden of Eden, and they lose it all because they became susceptible to this lie. They were deceived by Satan, and they ate this fruit. Now, this conversation that we see in the garden wasn't the last conversation of this nature. Satan continues to twist truths into lies. He tries to tell you what is good is bad and what is bad is good. He is the master of disguise. There's another Dana Carvey parody for you. He's the master of deception. Because Satan will take a truth like this. He'll say, well, obviously God wants you to be happy, right? If you're a good theologian, you would say, yeah, God wants us to be happy. But then he goes, well, then what the Bible has to say about your money and your sexuality and your gossip and all your vices can't be true because those things make you happy, don't they? He, he takes a truth and injects doubt into it. And to a biased soul, something like that actually starts to sound plausible. Like we start buying in on the deception. But then this is where Satan gets pretty mean. Once you've bought into one of his half-truths or his half-lies or however you wanna look at it, Satan, well, it's a half-truth, which is a full lie. Satan works to conceal the guilt. Well, he'll either work as the accuser to say, oh, look at how bad you are and point the finger at you, or he'll work in a way to get you to suppress the feeling of guilt, to downplay it, to say, you know, that sin really isn't that big of a deal. But underneath every one of these lies is a bold, demonically inspired blasphemy against God. And if you'll remember from, from reading through it, when Steph read through it for us, one of the most defining traits of the first beast is his desire to blasphemy against God. And he's relentless. He's unashamed about doing so. Right, we see this in verse one. He's got blasphemous names on his head. He, verse five, he utters haughty and blasphemous words against God. And, and I think that in our, our society, blasphemy is sort of downplayed. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe it's sarcastic. We say something sarcastically or flippantly using the Lord's name in vain, but, but at its core, it's way more than that. It's actually a really big deal. In fact, the fourth commandment that God gives Moses when they're at Mount Sinai is this commandment to do not use the Lord's name in vain. Don't blaspheme against God. Blasphemy is speaking or talking against God or even taking action against God that undermines his goodness, his character, and his works. 
It's an act of being in opposition or pushing against God. Now, the Antichrist deceives and blasphemes against God by flashing his power and authority at us. He, he, he puffs himself up to look stronger or more powerful than God. And you can see people buying in on this. They're, they're buying into the counterfeit because they want to be on the, the winning team. We see this in verse three. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? See, this is the apex of deception. When you look at Satan and his beast and say, oh, he's so strong, he's so tough, how can we fight against it? Who can stand up against him? And so people keep on buying in to worshiping Satan, essentially, right? And verse eight says, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now, realistically, very few people stand up and say, you know what, I worship Satan. Even Satanists don't really worship Satan. I don't know if you know that. But but Satanists, it's sort of like this this subversive thing. It's like we don't need God, and we think God's a big fairy tale, and Satanists too, and so we'll just adopt his name and kind of operate under that guise. It's kind of like it's a parody of being a Christian, really. So they're not even saying, I worship Satan. But the reality is that Whenever our worship is misdirected away from God, it eventually loops back around to Satan. You either worship Jesus or you worship Satan. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. And that's a hard thing to swallow. Because what about all those other religions out there? What are they doing? Certainly, they're not saying they worship Jesus. They do good stuff. But behind every other religion is a demonic force, a principality of darkness working to deceive other people because what they're saying is that there's another way to get right with God. At the core of secular humanism, at the core of Buddhism, at the core of Islam, at the core of Scientology, whatever the core is, it eventually loops back down. It's like all... All the rivers of misguided worship flow into the ocean of Satan worship. And honestly, Satan doesn't care if we come out and people come out by name and say, I'm putting my worship there because he knows eventually it's gonna wrap around to him anyway. But Jesus is the only one who says, I am the only way to the Father. I'm the only way for all creation to be made right again. I'm the only way for you to get to heaven. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you reject me, you reject God. 
So Satan is working to deceive us, to, to yank worship away from Jesus, away from God the Father, away from God the Spirit, and, and kind of collect it for himself. But here's where his deception turns into manipulation, where you go from being duped and deceived by Satan to being bullied by him. He basically gives an ultimatum. He says, you can either join forces with me or I'm going to do everything in my power to crush you. I'm gonna do everything in my power to make your life a living hell. Right, he's, he's the, the spiritual equivalent of the bully who shows up on the playground and says, give me your lunch money or I'm gonna beat you up. Except your lunch money is your worship. Now, one of the ways that we, and really we can see the manipulation, we don't see manipulation in this passage. All right, so where are you getting that? I, I'm getting this from verse 16. When he's talking about the second beast and how he has signs and doing wonders and giving breath to an image of the beast so the image of beast can speak and cause people who would not worship to be slain. Verse 16 says, also it causes all there's this compulsion, there's this manipulation, there's this force of will imposed. And there's a lot of ways that, that Satan can manipulate people into forsaking Jesus, to, to buying into the counterfeit. But, but one of the ways that's captured here is in verse 16 and 17. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless it has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name, which is, goes on and tells us the number is 666. Now here, Satan is using manipulation, right? In order to partake in commerce, in order to go to the grocery store and to get what you need, in order to go to JCPenney and get clothes, you have to have this mark on your hand or your forehead. Now this is not a, a literal mark, okay? We're, we're, not, we're not keeping our eyes peeled for a bunch of people with sixes tattooed on their hands or their foreheads. This is a spiritual mark, But this number, 666, it's another imitation thing. Do you remember how sevens were important, right? The seven horns, the seven eyes, a sign of perfection, of, of wholeness, completeness. Well, sixes are a sign of incompleteness, of imperfection. It shows that it's substandard to the seven. And this number itself brags of Satan's failures, that he is not God, that he is not worthy, that each member of the unholy trinity is an, a complete buffoon. It's six means failure, six means failure, six means failure. So he's gonna prey on our fear. What do I do if I don't have food? What do I do if I can't get any clothes? What if I can't get gas? I don't know. That, that, that's how he's working to cultivate fear and manipulate us into maybe compromising 
But the apex of Satan's manipulation is when he basically says, you either join me or you pay the price. You either join me or I'm gonna kill you. Right? You can see that in, in verse seven, where he's allowed to make war on the saints and to, to conquer them. Then you can see it further on down in verse 15. Those who would not worship the image of the beast would be slain. It's like, you worship me or I kill you. See, Satan is not only interested in subverting God's worship, but he's working to destroy and break down Christians too. Why, why wouldn't he? If we carry the family name, if we wrap our identity up in God, why would he not want to come after us? He's gonna try to conquer. He's gonna go to battle against us. He's trying to twist your arm and get you to say uncle, to abandon and to, to compromise your faith and your life in Jesus. I told you before, Satan's good at this. Like, he's not a newbie. He doesn't have his training wheels of deception. Like, he's really good at this. And realistically, he can be successful. Like, in fact, we see that he's successful. There's, there's a whole world full. When he talks about earth dwellers, people who dwell on the earth, he... Uh, John is, is separating two types of people. There are people who dwell in heaven who's being, war is being waged against. We see that in verse six, but there's also people who dwell on earth who are worshiping it. There's a whole category of people who are bought into this, who are being duped. But as Christians, not for one minute can we think that we are immune to these schemes of manipulation and deception. I, Isaiah labels us correctly. He says we're sheep gone astray. Okay, so we have this identity. We belong to Jesus. We're sheep of the flock. But there's sense where we can be led astray, where we wander from God, maybe sometimes from internal reasons, maybe sometimes external reasons, but we can be deceived And some of you are in here today thinking, I've been duped. I've been deceived. I, I've fallen for these, these half-truths. I can see how I've been manipulated. So, so there's a sense where you can see how you've not walked according to the ways of Christ, but instead you've been walking and keeping in line with Satan and sin and evil. I, I think that there are people who have been doing this for their whole life, that, may, that maybe you're coming to real, realize this today. But I also think that there are Christians who've been walking with Jesus for a long time that are sensing that there's an area of my life where I've been doing this, where I've compromised the truth of God and bought into a lie of Satan. 
We feel caught in sin. Maybe that there's no way out. This is just who I am. But here, Jesus gives us a way out. And the only way out for both types of people, the only way to break out of Satan's parody is to see Jesus in reality. It's to see him for who he is. He is the lamb who was slain. See, Satan says, fall in line with me or be destroyed. Jesus says, I was destroyed so you could follow me. And Jesus went to that cross and took every bit of sin, every, every place where we've been manipulated into sin, every place where we've been deceived into living into a subhuman way, because sin makes us subhuman. Jesus went to the cross and he bore all of those infirmities and he paid the price and he was, by the power of God, resurrected from the dead. See, this goes back to the lamb who appeared as if he was slain. He was slain. Jesus was dead and God made him alive. And because Jesus did this, he, he obeyed the will of God. He was given all power, all dominion. He was given the eternal kingdom. See, this, this is where Satan's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom contrast. Jesus has an eternal kingdom forever and ever. Satan's kingdom has, a, has an expiration date. Here it tells us 42 months. Now, that's not a literal number, but that is showing us that there is a day when Satan's rule comes to an end. And so the way to break out of this parody is to see the reality of Jesus, to see Jesus as the creatures in heaven see Jesus. Remember in, in chapter five, they, they look at Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed, you drew us out of that life of death and misery. From every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, you have made us, those who believe, who put our faith in Jesus, a kingdom and priests are God. And we shall reign on the earth with Jesus. And they go, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne. Satan's not sitting on the throne. The lamb sits on the throne. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's the real deal. And when we see Jesus like this, it completely changes our narrative. It, it pulls us out of the false narrative of us just always being victims and trapped and never able to do anything and we just can't get out of this. Jesus reaches down and lifts us out of it. He sets us in the real reality. Now this does not mean that we'll never be duped again. And if we get duped again, it doesn't mean that what Jesus did for us didn't work. The Apostle John, in one of his, his letters, writes in First John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Hey, or if you reframe it in light of Revelation chapter 13, hey, I'm telling you these things so you don't get deceived and so you're not manipulated. But if anyone does sin, if anyone is manipulated or is deceived or is accused, listen, listen. 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? He's made us right with God. God holds nothing against us when our faith is in Christ. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, for anybody who would believe. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Here's how you know that you're living in the true reality. Here's how you know that you know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. He's with Satan. He's a deceiver. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Because of this, friends, we have confidence that Jesus is always willing to receive us back. No matter how far we go astray, no matter what lies we've bought into, Jesus is he, he's the father in the prodigal son story that's standing there with open arms, running back to receive us. He, he wants us to live in the true reality by faith. And that looks like by obeying Jesus, holding fast to Jesus, keeping his word, fighting against deception and the manipulation of Satan and his demons. See, that's really the takeaway. This is the application of this text. It's sort of buried in between the two beasts. At the end of chapter 10, he says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He's saying, friends, I'm calling you to the true reality. And to live in the true reality, you gotta have faith. That's the invitation. And he goes on at the end of, uh, where is it, verse 18 after he's laid out all the deception, the manipulation, he says, this calls for wisdom. See, in order to live in, in true reality, we must have faith, we must have wisdom. And wisdom comes from Jesus. And Jesus tells us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, obey him, who can destroy both soul and the body. So here is the call today. Come to the, forget the parody, come to the true reality. See Jesus Christ, the lamb who is slain, who rules for eternity. And set your heart on him. This meal that we're about to take is the most real thing that you will do this week. It is. There's something about this meal that, that allows us every Sunday to step in, just for a moment even, and experience the true reality. There's a real physical sense of what we're doing here, right? We, we have a physical piece of bread which represents the body of Christ. We have a, a physical liquidy wine that we dip it in. But the spiritual reality behind that is so real. Right? This is the meal that sustains us, that, that this is the meal that generates faith as we keep walking. This is the meal that gives us endurance. This is the meal that reminds us one day we don't have to worry about Satan and his schemes anymore. We'll sit at a, at a banquet table with Jesus 
no enemies, all friends. And we'll celebrate the day that Jesus has wiped away all evil. He's taken care of Satan and his demons, and he's restored us to the true reality. Father, we thank you. I thank you for what Christ has done. It's hard to even comprehend it. I don't know. It's tough, but your, your spirit is so gracious to us in pulling back the layers and showing us and giving us even a little morsel to, to latch on to. I pray, Father, that you would stir our imaginations for the true reality. And I think that when we see Jesus, the way that John presents him, we can't help but be filled with awe. There's something awesome about the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that would stoop so low to die in my place, to give me life, to ransom me, to pull me out of my sin. And Father, I know that at the same time as, as we receive this meal and we rejoice in this, I also have a deep longing for people, whether they be in this room or next door neighbors or out in the city who don't yet know you, who their whole life are, are giving themselves to a false reality to a false narrative. I pray, Father, that you would awaken them, that you would use us as missionaries, as you told us, to make us into priests who, who are mediaries between you and the world so that your elect, those who have been sealed, who have been marked by you, would come to worship you, that every tongue would profess you as Lord, that every knee would bow and worship, that you would add to our numbers. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.